Today on Question Period, house money. We will invest in building more homes and in bringing down the barriers that keep them from being built. Tackling the housing crisis was the $10 billion centerpiece of the Liberal budget. But will the new measures really do anything to drop house prices? The Housing Minister Ahmed Hussein joins us in moments. And then, deal delivered? We've used our power, and in this budget we've delivered. He claims credit for getting a new dental care plan, but he doesn't like the Liberals' climate plan. How does the NDP justify their unique New Deal to prop up the Liberals for three years? NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joins us. And then, defense deficit. We'd rather see uh, a shift in defense spending than them clawing back. With the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Conservatives wanted more than $20 billion in defense spending a year. But they also want to balance the books. How could they do both? We'll ask Conservative finance critic Ed Fast and Conservative leadership candidate Jean Charest. All that, plus the Scrum is here to break down the politics of the new Liberal budget and what it means for you. I'm Evan Solomon. Let's go get some answers. A housing and affordability crisis, a climate crisis, and a war. Those three themes define the Liberals' new budget, the first under the new Liberal NDP agreement. And to deal with these, the Liberals found themselves with new fiscal firepower. Revenues were up for the government as a result of inflation, so the deficit of $113 billion for 21-22 fiscal year is lower than expected, and it will actually decline to about just under $53 billion this coming fiscal year. But the centerpiece of the budget is housing affordability. What was in there for that? Well, there's $4 billion over five years to launch the Housing Accelerator Funds to increase supply. There's a two-year ban on foreign home buyers. There's a tax-free first home savings account that will help prospective home buyers save up to $40,000 over eight, four years. And they've doubled the first-time home buyer's tax credit to $10,000. But when I asked the Finance Minister, Christopher Freeland, on CPV's power play about whether all these measures Mr. will actually Speaker, work to bring down house prices, she said, well, like there's no quick fix. Info. Check it out. There is no single magic bullet, which is going to mean that tomorrow every single Canadian can own a house in the neighborhood where they want to live. So will these measures really help boost the housing supply and really bring down house prices, the average house price over 800000 bucks in the country? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Minister of Housing, Ahmed Hussein. Always a pleasure, Minister, to have you on the program. Do you have a target with all these measures over $10 billion? Do you have a target about how much your government would like to reduce the average price of a home and when that price will fall? What's the goal? Well, Evan, as you know, uh, Canadians understand that housing is not just uh, within the purview of the federal government. We have some tools and we're willing to deploy them, as you know, through the National Housing Strategy and $14.1 billion in this uh, budget 2022. But we have to work with provinces, we have to work with municipalities, we have to work with nonprofits. And the Housing Accelerator Fund will make a big difference in increasing supply dramatically. We intend through a number of different programs, uh, both existing and new, to double the expected uh, number of homes constructed in Canada. More supply will uh, stabilize the market and hopefully um, uh, stop this astronomical increase in home okay, prices but, that but has you're, you're right. so really you wanna... uh, created a challenge uh, for Canadians. Okay. But it's not just the housing accelerator fund, which will result 
in 100,000 new homes by 2024. We will also uh, go move ahead, take the first steps with respect to a new innovative rent-to-own program, which is, which is meant to turn more Canadian renters into homeowners. But we're also uh, building the, new, the next generation of uh, co-op housing by investing $1.5 billion uh, to build 6,000 new co-ops, the first federal investment in new co-op building uh, for 30 years. The Rapid Housing Initiative extending it there by another 6,000 new homes to the tune of $1.5 billion investment. Bringing forward investments through the National Housing Co-Investment Fund, $2.9 billion to build 17,900 new homes. So, you know, on the issue of supply, we will work with our partners. We've demonstrated that we can do that uh, to build rapid housing through the Rapid Housing Initiative. Uh, municipalities know that the Housing Accelerator Fund is something that will work for them. That's why we listened to them and we've delivered okay. it uh, through Budget 2022. And now I, the work begins. Okay, I, I, there's a lot there, so there's a lot to unpack. Yep. Let me just start with the Accelerator Fund and increasing the supply of 100,000 homes by 2024. I understand the basic economics. If you increase supply, right, the price yes. should fall. And so I, I just want the data because this is important. And I, I recognize, by the way, it's, it's a complex. There's many forces affecting housing, but housing affordability is key. People want to know this. Should the average person, knowing that the, the accelerator fund, is there a goal that your government says, you know what, folks, when we do all this, the average price of a home is going to drop X percentage. What is the target? We, of course, the Housing uh, Accelerator Fund and more uh, housing supply is part of the solution, but it's not the only one. We're deploying a number of tools to this, uh, to this challenge, including on the demand side, by banning uh, foreign ownership of uh, Canadian uh, residential real estate. We are uh, making sure that the process is, uh, is more transparent. We're protecting home buyers by introducing a, and working on a, on a bill of rights, a home buyer bill of rights. We are... Uh, taking on the financialization of the real estate sector, which is something that we're going to be working on uh, in the next little while. But on top of that, we are making sure that, you know, as we work on supply, we also deal with the with, with some of the demand side issues that have but, really uh, led to, uh, uh, to, the, to the increase. And you're listing a lot of things, but, but look, I, I'm trying to figure out if they work. Um, the cost of homes have doubled since the Liberals came in power in 2015, as you know. I think the average house price then was 413000 It's now over 800000 So this has been going on for a long time. Um, so so I, I just want, again, I, I want to move on, but is there a target to drop the, price, the average price of a home? Yes or no? Like, is that actually part of this plan? Do you expect the average price of a home to drop? And if so, what's the target? Well, Evan, we are dealing with the price increases. I understand, uh, you know, the, the challenges that uh, you point to that Canadians face, but Canadians also understand that it is not just the federal government that is supposed to work on this. Uh, we know the provinces are working on this. We know the municipalities are, are stepping up with a number of programs to increase housing affordability. But supply is certainly part of the solution. It is not the only solution, but dramatically increasing supply will have a, an impact on okay. house price. So you're, so people should expect them, if you're saying that, that the house price uh, to drop because of the supply. Let me talk about the first time home buyers, a tax-free savings account up to $40,000. Um, look, there are some saying this will have an adverse effect. 
you're trying to um, decrease the price, but when you give people this kind of incentive and this kind of um, tax credit, that may actually have the knock-on consequences of driving up demand in the midterm. So you may get more demand that will actually raise prices. How do you, are these uh, measures acting at cross-purposes, increasing demand while trying to drive down price? Absolutely not, because you're, you, you know, I just, we just spoke about the fact that we're moving forward with a, a ban on foreign ownership of Canadian re- residential real estate. In addition to that, we're making uh, we're we're, tack- we're tackling unfair uh, business practices in the housing sector. I talked about ending blind bidding. We 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 also need to recognize that uh, we will be taking on uh, new measures to tackle uh, f- house flipping. So making sure that. Uh, that uh, those who uh, sell a newly acquired home before the end of uh, 12 months, within a year, will uh, will be charged uh, taxes equivalent to uh, business income. So right, but, there's but, a number but some of, of those, like, I, again, I, I, you know, to be fair, Minister, like yeah. the, the banning of, quote, foreign buyers, and, and I know there's lots of loopholes there, they tried that in B.C. I spoke to the former premier there. It had very little impact, like 2 or 3% of the market there ended up being quote-unquote foreign buyers. Um, and, and it actually didn't really drive down house prices at all. I just wonder, is that, is that one of those things where it looks like you're helping, but materially it actually has almost no impact at all, and you know that. But Evan, you're only focusing on, on that uh, particular measure. That is an important measure, but you measure. I also spoke about you know, the fact that we're tackling uh, you know, people who flip homes within a year uh, and, and, and instead of using homes as a place to live and uh, build uh, families and enable them to be accessed by Canadian families, you have folks flipping homes before 12 months. We will be tackling that, we will be tackling that issue by treating that differently from folks who's, who uh, transfer ownership over an extended period of time. That will have an impact on, 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 uh, on price increases. Supply will have an impact on price increases. All right. There's lots there. Uh, always good to have you on, on really the centerpiece of the budget, housing, Mr. Ahmed Hassan. Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much, Evan. Great to see you again. All right. When we come back, deal delivered. Did the federal budget meet all the shared priorities from the liberal NDP deal? How does the NDP justify propping up the liberals? Well, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Well, it was the first big test of the historic agreement. Remember last month, the Liberals and the NDP signed off on this supply and confidence deal that would see the NDP prop up the minority Liberal government for three years in exchange for acting on NDP priorities. The NDP have been looking to the budget as the first real test of this agreement and one of the biggest demands, dental care. And they delivered. The budget proposed $5.3 billion over five years to provide dental care to low-income Canadians. This year, though, the program would start with children 12 years and under and later expand the program. It'll be limited to families with an income of less than $90,000 annually. So does this live up to the Liberals' end of the bargain? And how does the NDP support government issues like dental care but criticize them on other key issues like the environment? Let's find out. Joining me now, leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh, always good to have you on the program. You and I spoke. I know you're going to support this budget. But all you got here 
from a specific point of view, was a $330 million down payment on, on the dental plan. Uh, I know that's important. Why was that enough to make this deal work for you and support the budget? Well, that's not all we got, but it's not something we can underestimate the impact. I've spoken to so many people that can't get their teeth fixed, and this will be life-changing to be able to go to the dentist. This is the biggest expansion of public health care in a generation, so it's not insignificant. It's significant and meaningful, and people will be able to get their teeth fixed. On top of that, we push for massive improvements on the affordable housing front. The definition of affordable housing, as per the Liberals, would mean that in a city like Montreal, that $2,200 was considered affordable. With our new definition that we brought in, affordability has dropped to under $800. That's a significant change. And before, the buildings would only have 20% of affordable uh, units. Now we double that to 40%. So that definition is also a game changer. Okay. Let's talk about housing then, um, because it's key for, for the Liberals are trying to make it the cornerstone, $10 billion over five years. Um, but let's talk about essentially the tax-free savings account for first-time home buyers. They can put up to $40,000 over four years and they can take it out tax-free. Not insignificant. But none of the measures, that measure, banning foreign buyers, none of it materially is going to lower the price of houses. In other words, they're incremental helps, but they're not transformational. What's the transformational fix for housing? Well, there's two parts to housing. One is there are pressures that are driving up the cost of housing. Housing has become more commodified, and that's something we've got to tackle. So ways to do that, getting, after, getting at uh, property flipping, looking at the capital gains around people who have secondary or third homes, not the primary residence, but looking at capital gains. It's incentivizing using property as a, like a stock market, as okay, a vehicle but I just to make just more to, money. I, I'm not trying to interrupt you, but they did do something on flipping, as you know. They did. There's a penalty for flipping within the first 12 months. And I want to be clear on, you know, capital gains is an issue. Are, are you pushing at all for any capital gains taxes on selling a primary residence? Because no. there's already capital gains on selling a secondary residence. No, no, uh, not on primary residence, but on secondary or investment properties. What we've seen is it's been incentivized by the lower capital gains for assets like that. That's incentivizing a market that's driving up the cost of housing. And so that's something that we propose in our campaign to get at, uh, to look at real systemic changes to tackle the pressures driving up housing. And then we need to invest in building more supply in a massive way. So we push the Liberals to go far further than they would have gone, uh, but for the fact that we had this agreement. And it, it made them change the definition, which is gonna be a game changer for the builds of, of homes that are actually affordable on top of more money to build homes right away. Okay, uh, the environment. I'm trying to just figure out how you balance because part of what you're doing by supporting them and keeping them in power for three years is it's a trade-off, right? I like dental care, but I don't like what they're doing on the environment. Uh, two things on the environment. One, they just gave approval to Bay de Nord, the deep water drilling off uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. That'll, uh, when it comes online in a number of years, three, four, five years, 200 thousand barrels of oil a day. Yes, it's low cost emissions to extract, but they still got to burn the emissions. That's a different thing. And two, they've got very big subsidies for carbon capture and storage in this. That's a huge part of this budget. You don't support those things. So how do you support this government keeping them in power? We're going to continue to say it's wrong. We're going to say that that approach is wrong, that we believe very strongly public money should go to workers, should go to renewable and clean energy, and should not be going towards subsidizing profitable oil and gas companies. But what you're suggesting is when people are telling us they want Ottawa to work, 
They sent us here just six months ago to get help to people. We got dental care, the biggest expansion of public health care in a generation, that the only way we can do anything is to then force an election where people will spend weeks and weeks dealing with that instead of getting help that they need. I don't accept that. But, I don't think but, that's but, the but only way know, we can get help to, to make, people. But, the, but you're making a choice in doing that. You're saying, look, I want to force them to get dental care or pharmacare, and by your own admission, the cost is to the environment. So you're making a choice here. You're no, saying, no, no, look, the choice, the choice where the liberals are making a choice. Well, wait, the you liberals, can't have both ways. You they can't are claim in government. credit for their policies when you like them. Absolutely, and, we can. And, and then not take credit when you don't That's like exactly them. That's exactly what you're we're going to do. But you're keeping them in no, power. No, no, no. Okay, you think that Canadians want to go to an election just six months after? You think that would be respectful to the I'm choice? I'm just saying, it's not no, a no, political but let me buffet but let me say, finish. thank you. Let Dental me finish my thought. Mine, environment's Who's in government right now? The Liberals are in government. Okay. They make choices, and that's their decision. We look at the opportunity that we have to get people help. If the Liberals are bad in the environment, the Liberals are bad on the environment. If we're getting dental care, that's expressly and clearly because we made them do it. They just voted against it, and now we made it but, happen. But you know the argument They're, in the environment. Right now, the Prime Minister and the government are making decisions. That's their decision. We right. use this position to get people the help they need. And we're critical of bad decisions, and we will raise those but, concerns. But, but because, I, I think it's important to explore, because the confidence and supply agreement that you've struck with the Liberals will keep them in power for three years, right? That means those are critical years when it comes to the environment. If it's so important to you and you don't like subsidies, you're propping up a government that does carbon capture and storage. You just propped up a government that did Bay de Nord. A lot of people like that. You don't, though. How are you absolving yourself from responsibility? It's your agreement to keep them in power. There's no question that we would make different choices if we were in government. But given the opportunity we have right now to get dental care to people, to help them find a home that's in their budget, there is no question in my mind that that is the right thing to do, to fight to get people the help they need. And we'll continue to fight on things that we disagree on. We're going to continue to oppose their decisions and raise concerns about things like the increasing subsidies to profitable fossil fuel companies instead of increasing investments in renewable energy. We will raise those concerns. But is your, uh, just last question, because I think the politics of this is interesting. Is your leverage on that stuff kind of weak? Because now that they've made the deal, the $330 million they gave for dental care, they say, well, Jagmeet Singh can say all he wants about the environment. We've got his vote anyway. And your leverage goes from here, and immediately it goes to nothing because you have no political leverage over them now. Well, really, at the end of the day, this is about what people chose. People chose a government. I respect the choice of people. I don't agree with the decisions that this government's making. But people chose this government in a, dual, in a, in a, in a full and fair election. In this context of a minority government where we were just voted into power six months ago, I'm going to look for every opportunity to help people out. And I think it would be irresponsible six months after an election to say, okay, now we're going to plunge the country into another election when we're dealing with the cost of living going up, when we're dealing with a war that makes us all feel less safe, and when we're dealing with a pandemic still. I think the responsible thing to do is to get help to people and to use our power to deliver it, and that's what we did. Okay, i got to leave it there. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right, coming up. In defense of defense spending, conservatives are calling for Canada to spend tens of billions of dollars more on national defense, but they also want to cut the deficit. How can they do both? Conservative leadership candidate Jean Charest joins us next to find out. Stay right here with Question Period. The atrocities in Bucha, the suburb outside Kyiv, where the Russians have allegedly committed such horrific war crimes, 
is just another indication that the NATO alliance needs to urgently up its defense. Now, way back in 2006, Canada joined other members in promising to spend 2% of its GDP on defense. But we don't do that. It would mean adding another 20 to $25 billion of spending a year, according to the parliamentary budget officer. Canada's never been close to that. In the latest budget, the government pledges to add roughly $8 billion over five years to the military, but that will only take Canada to 1.5% of GDP. Still, Conservative leadership candidate Jean Charest says the country has to move much faster. But how would he do it? What would he cut to get there? These are all critical questions as the race to become the next leader of the Conservative Party grows more crowded. There are now actually 12 candidates. The latest to join, actually a former military member and a former Liberal, MP Leona Alislev. So with so many people vying to lead, the budget is a good time to gauge some of the potential leaders' policies. We asked Pierre Polyevre. Patrick Brown and Leslie Lewis to join us today to react to the budget. They all said they were unavailable, but Jean Charest is here. Joining me now is Conservative leadership candidate Jean Charest. Good to see you, sir. Nice to see you, Evan. You want to boost military spending to 2%. Yeah. Uh, the Conservatives agree to that. That's 20 to $25 billion a year, according to the PBO. How do you get that money to do that and still balance the books? Where does it come from? Well, you're not going to do it overnight, obviously especially given the seriousness of what you're spending on, which includes military equipment, procurement, submarines, drones, radars. One of the things that I would do, Evan, that I feel very strongly about is opening two bases in northern Canada in the Arctic, one with a deep-water port, because we are neighbors of the Russians. This is about occupying our own territory and sovereignty, something fairly urgent in this wor world. And, I, you know, the war, war in Ukraine has been an eye-opener for Canadians in regards to our own security. We Stephen can't rely Harper, on anyone Stephen else. Stephen Harper wanted to do that, didn't happen. Well, I'm going to make it happen. And as we look to the future, this is about an urgent matter of occupying our own territory, our own sovereignty. But when and, would and, you hit the 2%? I, I well, only, it'll, take, it'll, it'll take time to do it because if you're buying military equipment, then you have to get it right. Our procurement system has been a mess. We know that. The Liberals have delayed the uh, purchase of the F-35 seven years for absolutely nothing. I mean, that's seven lost years under Mr. Trudeau. So we have to do it in an orderly way. It'll happen over a certain period of time, but we have to get it right. Inflation, 30-year high. Affordability yeah. is key. The Liberals in this budget said that we're going to tackle this with the housing initiative. We have the tax-free savings account, allow people to save up to you know, $40,000 a year in four years. Um, have they done enough to tackle affordability? And if not, what would you, what would you do to, to well, tackle inflation now? Here's the problem with the liberal approach. Here we're coming out of COVID. We have spent like never before in the history of Canada. That has fed into the inflation dynamic. And the liberals want to spend more to be able to layer over another uh, level of spending on areas of provincial jurisdiction, by the way. There's two things that we should be doing in regards to inflation. One is controlling spending, bringing it down. That's the part that we control, because we don't control everything about inflation. The second part is reducing, I think, the tax load of Canadians. Okay. I did that in Quebec, by the way, in the Great Recession, and that had a very positive effect on the economy, but also allowed 
middle class and lower income people to have more money in their pockets. But to be fair, they are reducing the debt to GDP ratio. In four years, they say the deficit is going to be about $8 billion. The economy is growing, unemployment's low. I understand inflation's giving them more revenues, but what would you cut then if well, you're going to do it? The, the problem with saying that, by the way, is that you're four years out and things happen. Is there anyone who thought, who's listening to us today, that there would be a war in Ukraine uh, only six months ago? And Canada's projections on all the metrics that the economic community look at for per capita growth puts us among the lowest places in the world. One of your chief rivals, uh, Pierre Polyevra, and I want to get to the leadership race, says yeah. the first thing he'd do is he'd cut the price on carbon, cut the carbon tax. Would you? I would have a policy that promotes uh, carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, green or blue, biofuels, small modular reactors, and there would be a price on carbon. And it should not... But that's the Liberal... Like, to no, be no, fair, no, 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 it's not. Well, no, they had not. carbon capture and storage. They've got a tax credit for carbon capture and storage. They support nuclear, small nuclear, and they've got a price mechanism. But they, won't but they won't develop resources when, in fact, we need a policy that transitions us from a high-carbon economy to a lower-carbon economy. The Liberals, the Liberals are, again, are all about spending. On this carbon tax, there was a recent increase on the 1st of April that should not have happened because we're on in an inflationary period and we have a war in Ukraine. The tax should have been simple and flexible enough that if you have so, that kind okay. of situation, you know, don't do it. But allow me to finish. It can't discriminate against rural Canadians. It cannot be a wealth transfer tax for the country, and it has to make sense. But let me also add this. Our carbon position going into the next campaign cannot be a slogan. And if the only thing you're offering is a slogan, the Conservatives will be dead in the water. It has to be credible, simple, flexible. Mr. Pauly Everett has hit on you, as, as you know, you and I have talked about it, as a Liberal, right? He's attracting big crowds, sir. Like, I'm telling you, you're seeing a thousand people there, and I've seen some of your crowds, 500 in Quebec, but smaller crowds, he's got momentum. He's talking about axing carbon price, cutting things, getting rid of the gatekeepers. Uh, now, you've become very much more openly critical of him. Specific, now you're here in Ottawa, specifically about his support of the truckers. Yes. Why? Not, he, not support, support of a blockade. I mean, what he says he supports freedom. No, 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 no. He says he supports freedom. Excuse, excuse me. I mean, d d were you mistaken? I mean, he actually didn't support the blockade. What you saw, what he did was he was, was out there. He was out no, there with he, the truckers. You, you sound like you drank the Kool Aid here. No, no, he no, was no. out there with the truckers. Every, I'm giving everyone, you his view. Evan, everyone knows that Pierre Poilievre supported the blockade, and I don't know. I don't care how much spin you put into it. Here is someone who makes laws and says I can break laws because I'm above the law. Well, I'm sorry. If you want to be a leader of a party, if you want to sit in the House of Commons and make laws, you have to obey them. The laws of the land are not a buffet table from which you choose what you want or do not want to support. And if you say to Canadians, I want to be the leader of the Conservative Party and I want to be the chief legislator of the country, but I don't have to obey the laws, I'm sorry. That's not just a failure in leadership. It disqualifies you, as far as I'm concerned, as being someone who thinks or aspires to be a leader of a party. But, sir, uh, he would say he doesn't support any illegal activity. He just supported the truckers. And by your logic, what about Candace Bergen, the interim leader? She was out there. Andrew no, 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 Scheer, no, no, no. the Evan, former leader, Evan, he was out there. No, no. Lots I'm of sorry, conservatives I'm sorry. were out there. I'm sorry, Evan. I mean, it's not that, you know, it's not that easy. He supported blockades, blockades that uh, forced people to l close down their businesses, 
that made us lose jobs, that even had the White House, Evan, call up the PMO here in Ottawa and say to Prime Minister Trudeau, do you want us to clean this up? I mean, that's how far this thing went. So you think he should be disqualified for it? I'm saying, I'm saying, as he goes into this race, that if he supports, as he supported blockades, that how can he make the argument that I can be a leader of a party and a prime minister of the country and not obey the laws of the land? I mean, clearly, I mean, every Canadian saw this. So now he's going to tell us that what happened actually did not happen? I'm, I'm sorry, it's not that simple. He cannot redo the past, and he can't actually invent events. He supported the blockade. There's consequences to those decisions, and one of the consequences is that he should not be a leader of a party, even less a prime minister, and make laws if he can't obey the laws that he himself will vote for. He wants to make Canada the crypto capital... Of, of the world, he says that you know he's run, he, he talks a lot about the central bank because he believes it's printing money and causing inflation. Too much money chasing too few goods, and he will stop the printing of money. And one way he's talking about it is the crypto capital. Uh, he's talked about opting out of inflation through Bitcoin. What's your response? You had Stephen Paulos on this show who made a comment about that because he also affirmed that this was a way of getting out of inflation. Here you have someone who is the governor of the Bank of Canada, extremely credible on this issue, who says, excuse me, I'm sorry, that's just not the case. This is bizarre. Not only is it wrong, it's just simply bizarre. But crypto is the real, but, but cryptocurrency is sure, here to stay. But, you know, cryptocurrency needs to be regulated and needs to be understood. But I'm concerned, you know what worries me? There's people who are going to listen to him and put a lot of money into cryptocurrency and are going to be wiped out. All right, I, I got to leave it there. Uh, good to have you here, Mr. Thank Shere, you. a pleasure. Thank you, a real pleasure. Okay, after the break, budget blowout. Does the federal budget feature out-of-control spending, as the Conservatives claim? What is the Conservative Party's biggest question about it? Well, the Conservative finance critic Ed Fast joins us next on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. I think what the Liberals are hearing from many within their own party is that they have abandoned who they are as traditional, even moderate Liberals, and they have moved over the last seven years so far to the left, they're not even recognizable. Uh, and this budget, it is an indication of that. So that's what the interim Conservative leader, Candace Bergen, told me when I asked her her reaction to the Liberals' new budget. She mentioned out-of-control spending and the NDP tax-and-spend budget. You've heard that. But how accurate is the picture? Look. Certainly there is a lot of new spending, and like the $5.3 billion dental care program for five years, some of it is directly due to the NDP. There's also the $10 billion for housing supply and affordability, $7.2 billion for defense priorities over five years, which will push defense spending to about 1.5% of Canada's GDP. That, of course, short of the NATO goal of 2%. There's nearly $12.5 billion for climate change initiatives, $10.6 billion towards reconciliation. And guess what? Well, yes, there's a 30-year high inflation, and that's killing consumers at the pump. You probably know that. It's pumping big revenues to the government and helping their bottom line. So is this really a budget blowout, as the Conservatives claim? And what's their alternative? And can the Liberal plan on things like housing actually bring results? We're going to break down the budget on the Scrum. Joyce Napier is our CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Stephanie Levitz is a Parliament Hill reporter for the Toronto Star. And our special guest is the Conservative finance critic, Ed Fast. Good morning to everybody. Ed Fast, i got to start with you. I know Conservatives have said they won't support the budget. It'll pass thanks to the NDP. 
Is it fair, though, to accuse the Liberals of, of out-of-control spending when they're, they've got a declining deficit that they say will reach $8.4 in five years? Well, the issue isn't the declining uh, debt-to-GDP uh, ratio. The issue is spending. And <coughs> spending by this government is up dramatically over when they were first elected. It's up by 53%, even since 2019, when the pandemic hit. Uh, spending is up by 25%. And the problem with spending is that you're using tax dollars to spend money, which goes into the economy and then drives inflation. And that's exacerbated, by the way, by increased taxes, because every time you increase a tax, that ends, that ends up adding to the inflationary pressures in our country. Okay, so uh, Steph, calibrate that. The Liberals say, well, you know, we've got a, a, a different view of that, actually. They describe some of their spending as investments, and they say that they are more prudent. What, what's your read on the budget? Well, to the first point, with all due respect to Mr. Fast, in the last election, the budget that the Conservatives were, were proposing, their platform actually cost more than the Liberal Party did. So it's an interesting argument to make now about spending. And I would also challenge whether some of the, the priorities outlined by the Liberals for these big spending initiatives like housing, for example, aren't almost entirely in line with exactly the same thing the Conservatives have been calling for for months. So we have to make those points. I think that there are some questions that can legitimately be asked about initiatives that the Liberals have placed in this budget that mirror past initiatives that didn't succeed with similar amounts of funding. And I'm thinking about the, you know, the investment bank scenario versus some of these new growth funds that the Liberals are advancing this time. The question becomes they pour all of these money, all of this money into these big arm's length organizations with no clear metrics being defined on the achievables. Joyce, what about that? Is, is, there, a, is there a gap there between what they say and what they accomplish? Well, you know, there's not much in there, or, or if there is, I missed it, on, on growth. Uh, and, you know, Krisha Freeland did say this is the, the pandemic is behind us, although we are in a sixth wave. Uh, but, okay, so if it's behind us and, and we want to reconstruct and rebuild uh, this economy, which we need to do, um, I agree with, with Stephanie. So this Canada Growth Fund, let's just dig into it for just two minutes. $15 billion will be injected by the federal government over five years. But senior officials tell us that in order for it to be efficient and effective, they need injections of $125 to $140 billion a year uh, from, obviously, you know, foreign investors. So have we set up, are we setting up this country uh, for that? Yeah, and are they going to book other programs? Uh, let me go back to you, Ed Fast, either on that but also on defense. Uh, your party is calling for uh, Canada to live up to its aspiration of 2% GDP. Um, that would, according to the parliamentary budget officer, and he's going to join us next, that's about $20 billion to $25 billion more a year. Can, can you square the circle? How, how could uh, the Liberals spend that and then still bring down the deficit? Like, what would have to go to make that kind of thing a reality, Mr. Fast? Well, I think uh, there, there will be general agreement that that cannot be reached in one or two or three years. The 2% NATO target, of course, is one that Canada has lagged far behind on, and many of our NATO partners have highlighted the fact that we haven't been pulling our weight. So how do you come up with that money? Um, the $7 uh, billion that they pumped into it uh, yesterday is likely going to be... a a small down payment towards that. And uh, the reality is the world is changing around us. 
One of the concerns I've raised, Evan, is that this government has really not gone through a prioritization process. As you know, at the Finance Committee, uh, we did a pre-budget consultation where we received hundreds and hundreds of submissions from stakeholders. But can we go through a prioritization process that at least allows us to discuss what is most important, what is next important, and what is something that we'd like to have but can't afford right now? And you know what? The government said, no, no, we just are going to adopt all these recommendations, bring them forward to the government, and let them include uh, those in the budget. Now, many of those didn't make it into the budget, but the process the government undertook to get to this point is underwhelming and, quite frankly, deficient. Okay. St Staff, you, you want to weigh in on that. What, what, what's your sense of what Mr. Fast is saying and their priorities? Well, I mean, take defense as an interesting um, exercise there, because not only did they, they announce new funding, they announced a, a wide-ranging defense policy review. One could ask, how do you do that without having a foreign policy review? Let's talk about how foreign policy was basically nowhere in the budget, except for, of course, talking about the crisis in Ukraine. Um, <clears throat> this government, you know, is, is now getting a bit long in the tooth, and w one wonders how much runway they have left for these big transformational programs. I think what it seems they're trying to do is put some things in motion that, you know, in the words of Lisa Raitt, who's a former conservative cabinet minister even, that they can, everyone in this country can potentially look back on in 20 years and say the things that were done right now were the right thing to do. Um, but the question that always comes back with every level of government, but also this liberal government, is they make these very lofty promises, these very lofty claims. And there's very little accountability for that delivering of those claims. I got to leave it there. We're trying to make sense of this budget. Uh, Ed Fast, great to have you on the program. Uh, please return the conservative finance critic. Joyce and staff are going to stay. All right, still to come. Post-COVID back to balance. What red flags did the red-orange budget raise in terms of more spending to come? And is the affordability crisis being tackled? The country's independent budget watchdog, the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroud, joins us next on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. So which way are they going? First, the Liberals tacked to the left to make a deal with the NDP to stay in power for three years. Then the budget tacked back toward the center with the finance minister focusing on lowering the deficit and saying the time for extraordinary spending is over. Our deficits must continue to decline. That is our fiscal anchor. This is a line we will not cross. And this is what will ensure that Canada's finances remain sustainable. Now, on one hand, that's true. The deficit is set to decline progressively. So is the ratio of debt to GDP. And the budget does cut back on some of the Liberals' campaign promises from the fall. But then all of this is before they book new permanent spending programs, like Pharmacare. So how will their budget play out politically? And does it do enough to solve maybe the biggest political challenge for all politicians, the affordability crisis, specifically around things like homes and inflation. The Scrum is here to talk about that. Joyce Napier is our CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Stephanie Levitz is the Parliament Hill reporter for the Toronto Star. And our special guest is the Parliamentary Budget Officer himself, Yves Giroux. Good to have you, Mr. Giroux, join our Scrum. Uh, I mean, you've been critical before of the government surpassing its own fiscal guardrails when it comes to pandemic recovery spending. So there's a real fear of this. Um, what did you see or what maybe didn't you see in here that causes you either concern or maybe less concern? Okay, so what was uh, 
in the budget was a declining debt-to-GDP ratio, which is uh, reiterated as a fiscal anchor by the government. So uh, it's something that, as a budget officer, I was looking forward to as to whether the government was going to stick to that fiscal anchor or choose to, to have another one. You may, uh, you may remember that a budget or two ago, the government introduced the concept of fiscal guardrails, which I was uh, critical of. For, for obvious reasons at the time, I mentioned that these guardrails were very likely to be met way before the three-year horizon that the government had mentioned. So the, to see that the budget does not refer to fiscal guardrails, again, is probably a good thing because um, the labor market, which was one of the main indicators of fiscal guardrails, uh, has already been met and we've returned to pre-pandemic levels on many of these indicators. Right, so maybe not as big spending as you thought. Joyce, I want to talk about affordability because they, there are a lot of big programs still in that and there are big programs to come. Uh, the question that we talked about in the last segment was, are they going to get results? Um, the big question is, you know, results down the road are one thing. Affordability, people are facing an inflation crisis and affordability crisis on homes and all. Does it address the affordability crisis? Well, it tries to address it, and we've got to give them A for effort. Uh, look, it's difficult, especially at the federal level, to be able to address that in an efficient way and a way that will give results. Will the $10 billion for housing uh, yield what they're hoping? Uh, we won't know that. Uh, we won't know that for several years. I mean, they're talking about building homes. They're talking about giving money to, the, to, to cities so that building permits and construction can go faster, uh, $40,000 tax-free for first home, uh, you know, loans for first-time home buyers. Uh, you know, you're putting more people on the market, an already overheated market. So, but, you know, with interest, raises, interest rates, rising. Uh, right. We know that the Bank of Canada will come next week with, uh, you know, with, with that. Steph, uh, uh, housing was a big issue. Uh, that's the centerpiece, kind of the shorthand for affordability right now. Did they tackle affordability given the inflation climate and the immediate needs of consumers? Well, you know, we're, we're never going to get a 1% GST cut out of the Liberal government, I don't think, which is something, you know, one, a political move, a, a questionable economic move, but something that lots of folks have been referring to in recent days as a way, you know, Stephen Harper in the past both got elected and moved to create some immediate economic stimulus. A couple of the things that the Liberals are proposing to help deal with housing, for example, as Joyce referred to, really drive demand. And they'll drive demand faster than there is the supply to match it. What's surprising to me, though, is given the affordability crisis we're in, there are a lot of other small measures that were contained in the Liberal platform that really weren't costed out as being that expensive that they could have done, you know, or even signaled they were going to do relating to student loans, relating to like other bits and pieces of people's debt load that perhaps they could have considered addressing right away uh, in order to deal with the pinch. But they've obviously chosen not to do that. And as, as, instead of, you know, playing a long game to sort of make life more affordable for more people in the longer run. Uh, Yves Giroux, I'd love you to weigh in on that affordability crisis and, and how these programs, if they're actually materially effective to try to you know, ease house prices or, 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 or ease the burden in a time of very high inflation. Well, we released a report several weeks ago that looked at the housing situation and the affordability gap for uh, Canadians wanting to enter into the, la the, the labor the housing market uh, and in several Canadian cities. And, and we found that there, uh, there's an affordability gap that's being built over time, especially since 2015 in many metropolitan areas of the country. 
And we also looked at the number of housing starts compared to the demographic pressure. So the combination of uh, births as well as immigrants. And we found that the, uh, the housing starts did not keep pace with the demographic pressure. So that was a fundamental mm. driver of um, the um, affordability gap. So it seems to be, in good part, a supply issue. So the big question is whether budget measures will be sufficient to close or contribute to closing that affordability gap. Let's go last on, on raw politics of this. Uh, budgets, Joyce, they're political documents. Uh, what is the political takeaway about this, the first budget of the NDP Liberal deal? Um, what does it say about th this government? And what's the political echoes as we're in a conservative leadership race as well? So lots of politics here. Absolutely. I mean, the one thing that I'll say is there won't be any drama uh, because usually when there's a minority government and a budget that's tabled, you always wonder if the government will fall. So hello, everybody. It won't fall. We know that Jagmeet Singh will uh, will will back this budget. And when uh, the conservatives or, or Candace Bergen says, well, this is mostly an NDP platform, it's true and it isn't true. Um, it, it is a very progressive or very uh, left-leaning, uh, uh, I think, uh, budget. Uh, will the conservative leadership be able to feast on it and point their fingers and, and talk about too much spending or I don't think so. Steph, uh, your, your takeaway uh, from this budget, the political fallout, maybe refracted through the conservative lens and, and what this says about this new deal between the Libs and the NDP. So one thing that's interesting is a colleague of mine crunched the numbers to see what the price tag was for the NDP deal. <clears throat> Literally, like how much did it cost? And what they seemed to find was that if you added up farm, the dental care promise, as well as um, part of the additional money that was coming from for housing, that roughly is the equivalent of what they promised on defense. So th there's an interesting nugget there, because the liberals were asked, did you push anything aside here just for the NDP deal? Krista Freeland was unequivocal. She said no. Through the conservative leadership lens, uh, it'll be very interesting to see you know, if the candidates choose to, to hang on to this budget and reframe it for their own purposes, which is to say, well, it's too much spending, but then we need to ask them, okay, well, then what would you cut? Mm. What program do you disagree with? Do you, are you really not in favor of dental care? How about national child care? What would you do with that? Do conservative party members care about those issues? Do they push those issues onto the agenda of the race? or do they not, I think will be something quite interesting to watch. Uh, Yves Giroux, uh, Joyce Napier, Steph Levitz, what a busy last week with the budget as we look ahead to the results of that. Thanks so much for being here and, and the work that you all did on the budget. That is Question Period for this week. Thank you for watching and engaging in the debates about our country. I'll see you back here on Monday, 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV Power Play, on CTV News Channel. Remember, hug your loved ones, and if they're sick, I hope they get better. And we'll be back here in seven short days.